Well, would you please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Today we come to the conclusion of one of the greatest and most profound passages in all of the Apostle Paul's writings, which is this prayer at the very end of Ephesians 3. And if you're familiar with the overall structure of the book of Ephesians, you know that today we also come to the conclusion of the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so that's a monumental accomplishment for me, and I appreciate you guys for going along with me on on this journey. So we're halfway through. And in just a few moments, I'm going to read all of this prayer from verse 14 to verse 21, even though we're just focusing on 20 and 21. And I'm going to, and as I do that, you know, don't think about and consider, right, all that the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians here in this prayer. But you're going to hear yet again that Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell and rule in and over their hearts and their lives through faith. You'll be reminded that Paul prayed for God to give them the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for them. And please don't miss how this prayer ends, how it ends with Paul praying that they, and really that we, may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's truly an extraordinary extraordinarily extravagant prayer that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, I hope you've noticed, hope you've noticed in the weeks that we've been, we spent in this prayer that, see, Paul, he's praying a big prayer for the Ephesians. I mean, he's not merely praying for God to help them out a little. He's not merely praying for, for God to give them a little bit of an encouragement or a little bit of guidance or a little bit of direction. As David Strang puts it, he's praying for God to fill the Ephesians, for Christ to burst in upon them by his spirit, for the love of Christ to overwhelm them like endless ocean depths engulfing them. This is a big prayer. How can he pray it? You know, how can he pray it? I mean, it's a big prayer indeed. And then here in these concluding two verses, Paul himself Burst forth in doxology, praise, in worship to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So I'm going to read this whole prayer, um, verse 14 to verse 21, as we focus on verses 20 and 21. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. We're going to look at these two verses, verses 20 and 21, under two headings. 
We've got God's power and God's glory. God's power and God's glory. So first, God's power. Look with me at that, that first phrase, that beginning, the first few words in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able. Let's just stop there. Now to him who is able. Now, I know that you understand what those words mean, but let me ask you, to be honest, do you believe that phrase? Do you believe that God is able? Do you believe that God is able to handle any and every need and concern that you have? You know, do you believe that your God is able? Do you believe that your God is that big? The, the, the preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said this about this verse, our greatest trouble in the Christian life is our failure to realize that God is not man. You know, we, we know that we are unable to do a lot of things. We know about our inability. We know about our limits. But God's not like us. Our God is able. Do we believe that? See, I fear for many of us that our view of God is too small. Theologian John Stott says that thinking about God is able, what that means is that God is neither idle, nor inactive, nor dead. And his point being there is that he's contrasting and comparing the one true living God with idols and false gods of our own creation. Now to help kind of put into view for us our God who is able in what he can and does do for his people, I want to remind you of the true and dramatic account from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Think of 1 Kings chapter 18, when there's a showdown between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You may remember that story. This, this true account tells us what the God who is able can do for his people. And the setting is that the people of Israel were being led astray and they were worshiping false, the false god Baal and other idols instead of worshiping the one true God. And the prophet Elijah said in 1 Kings 18, 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah's challenge was, okay, now we're going to see who really is the one true God. We're going to see who is able. Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Then we read in 1 Kings 18, 23 and 24, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the ground rules that Elijah said is that we're going to have two piles of wood. We're going to make two altars. And there's going to be two bulls. And you can pick the one you want. You pick one, put it on, on your altar. I'll put the other on my altar. And what we're going to do is we're going to cry out, you to your God, me to the one true living God. And we're going to see who answers. We're going to see who is able. Then we read in verse 26 to 29, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah told the people to to gather, to get four large jars full of water and dump them on the altar in the bull. He told them to do that three times so that the bull and all of his, his bull, all of his wood, that altar, it was soaked, drenched with water, water in the trench around it. And then we read in verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. If you look back to our text in Ephesians 3.20, this is the God that Paul is speaking about. This is your God, now to him who is able. That your God is neither idle, nor inactive, nor dead, nor asleep, nor distracted, nor on a journey. He is able. The question is, do we believe he is able? Your Heavenly Father's ability to answer your prayers, the prayers of His children, is not limited or constrained by anything or anyone. Put another way, there is nothing that He cannot do. You know, your God spoke the whole cosmos into being. He parted the Red Sea to deliver His people out of slavery in Egypt. That he gave his people victories by destroying the walls around Jericho at the sound of trumpets and by making the sun stand still in the sky for a whole day. I mean, just to name a few examples. But you may say, well, Richard, yes, that's true, but that's how God answers the prayers of people like Moses or Joshua or David or Elijah or Jesus or Paul or later men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, but but I, I am, I'm just me. Well, Paul has more to say, honestly, to, to correct and to, to reprove our doubt and to encourage our faith in our God who is able. So look again at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Okay, I want you to keep looking at this verse. And again, I know you know what each of these individual words mean. But do you realize what they say whenever you put them together like this? That your God can do all we ask. But it says more than even that. Your God can do all you ask or think of asking. But it says even more than that. God can do more than all we ask or think of asking. But it says even more than that, that God can do more abundantly all we ask or think. But it even says more than that, doesn't it? I mean, look closely. 
God can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Friends, this is an utterly staggering promise. The question is, do we believe it? God's power to give, God's power to answer your prayers is far greater than your power to ask. That you cannot even dare to imagine more than God is able to give. I mean, think about what Jesus said about prayer in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But, but Richard, I, I've prayed many prayers. And those prayers have gone unanswered. And I, I understand that, and I don't know all the prayers that you have prayed, and, and I can imagine that, only imagine how heartbreaking some of those unanswered prayers have been and even are to you. But, but I think it's wise for us to attempt to stay as balanced as the Bible is balanced always, but especially whenever we're talking about prayer. So for example, it's possible for us to pray in a worldly or sinful way, and when we do, we should not expect God to answer those prayers. As James chapter 4, verse 3 puts it, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's also true that, that God is our loving, perfect, wise, heavenly Father, and His answers to our prayers are always governed and marked by His love and His wisdom and His goodness and His sovereign plan of redemption for our lives and his sovereign plan for all things. And so look back to Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. See, God's power to answer your prayers is far greater than your power to ask. That you can't even dare to imagine more than God is able to give. As I heard a friend say once, you never need to be concerned that your prayers are too bold or that they're too much or that they're too big. I mean, don't ever believe the lie, maybe I should not pray for this or pray for that because you know what, it's just too bold. It's just too audacious, it's just too extravagant, it's too big, it's, it's too much. Dear Christian, your heavenly Father, his power to answer your prayers far exceeds your power to ask. God wants you to pray that prayer. He wants you to pray those prayers. Your God is able. He's a great God. He loves you with a great love, and he is not limited in any way. Therefore, don't limit what you pray for. You know, William, William Carey is known as the, the father of modern missions, and he was used by God to successfully pioneer a, a great gospel missionary work in India. And his personal motto that he kept repeating to himself was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, pray big prayers. Believe, believe that your God really is able. I think that's a great application drawn from Ephesians 3.20. 
Now, to, to, to illustrate this with a, with a story uh, from history, and now I've heard this story told uh, quite a few times. Um, it's always been told as true, but you guys know how it goes for certain preacher stories. They kind of take on a life of their own. Of course, not my stories, but others, other stories tend to do this, okay? But, but regardless, here, here's the story. Um, that Alexander the Great was said to have had a faithful, loyal general who came to him asking for Alexander to, to allow this, this father to go to the treasurer and, and, and to get money from the treasurer to, treasury to, to pay for his daughter's upcoming wedding. Alexander considers the request, and he says, yes, I will gladly pay for your daughter's wedding. You've always been loyal and faithful to me. Therefore, you go to the treasurer, and you ask for whatever you need. I don't even care how much you You ask for whatever you need, and he'll give it to you. So the general goes, and he does as Alexander said. But the treasurer is, I mean, he's, he's astonished by how much money that this general was asking for. And so he doesn't think that Alexander would really go for this. So he goes to Alexander. He says, did you tell the general that he can ask for any amount he wanted? Did you not give him any limits? Alexander said, yes, I did. I told him to ask for whatever he needed, whatever he wanted. The treasurer said, well, you won't believe this, but he asked for this much, this, this large amount, this extravagant amount. And the story goes, Alexander said, give it to him. Give it all to him. Don't you know what an honor this man is doing me by asking for such a ridiculous sum? He, his request tells me that he believes I am both rich and generous. That he honors me by this request. Dear Christian, we honor our God who is able. Whenever we take him at his word and we pray these big prayers of faith, Prayers that he must answer. Prayers that we believe that he is able to answer. And John Newton um, captures this in one of his hymns. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. Our God is able. Your God is able. He's a great God. He loves you with a great love. He's not limited in any way. Therefore, do not limit that for which you pray. But Richard, I, I still struggle to believe that this can be true for me. I mean, I, listen, I see what that verse says. I believe that, that God is able, that he, he answers big prayers. But, but, but will he? You know, will he answer these prayers for me? Well, look again at Ephesians 3.20 and pay special attention to that final phrase. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The power at work within us. The power at work within you. Do you see what Paul says is true for you, dear Christian? The limitless power of God is at work within you. This is resurrection power. That this resurrection power, which has already raised us, has already raised you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to new spiritual life in Christ, 
because of his life, death, and resurrection. You see, this final phrase in verse 20 is referring to God's resurrection power, which is already at work within you. That God's power saves you. God's power preserves you, keeps you, and will keep you. And God's power in the person of the Holy Spirit will supply all you need. Listen to how Pastor Ian Hamilton puts this. The power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him over all things and that transforms children of God's wrath into his adopted sons through Jesus Christ, this Christ-exalting, sin and Satan-conquering power works in us. Every Christian is a walking testimony to divine omnipotence, to how God is all-powerful, how God is able. Perhaps our struggles with prayer is because our minds and hearts are not as overwhelmed and captivated by God's greatness and goodness as they might be. Perhaps part of our problem is that our God is too small. Friends, our God is big. Our God is limitless. Your heavenly father, he's able. He's a great God. He loves you with a great love. And he's raised you to new life with his resurrection power, which powerfully works within you. He's not limited in any way. You don't, therefore, you don't have to limit what you pray for. Right? So who is that person that maybe you once prayed for, but you've given up praying for them? You've stopped praying for them to come to faith in Christ because you've just decided, you know what, they're, they're too far. They're too far away from the Lord. I believe their heart is too hard. Friends, remember, his power at work within you, your heart was not too hard. That your God is able, and so pray for them. You know, who is that person that you've thought about sharing the gospel with, you've thought about inviting to church, but, but you haven't? And you keep, the reason you give yourself is, well, I just, I just know they won't be interested. Friends, your God is able. Your God is able to move in hearts and minds. Your God is able. Pray that prayer. See, God can heal the sick. He's able. Pray and ask him. God can heal and reconcile and restore even the most hopelessly broken marriages. That God is able. Take him at his word. Pray, ask. God can even turn the, the heart of the most rebellious and wayward child. Even the most rebellious and wayward parent. Even the most wayward and rebellious sibling. And bring them to repentance and faith. God is able. Take him at his word and pray those prayers. The Bible gives us many analogies and word pictures to help us believe the truth found in Ephesians 3.20. And one of my favorites is found in Psalm 81. In Psalm 81, verse 10, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open, wide, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. See, God says, trust me. Remember who I am, what I've done for you. The promises I've made, the promises I've fulfilled. Trust me. Take me at my word. Open your mouth wide. Make your request. Pray your big extravagant prayers. And I will do it. I will fill it. I am able. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. If only we believe that. If only we would dare to believe our God could be that big. 
That's God's power. Second, God's glory. Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so here we see you know, why verses 20 and 21 are considered to be doxology. But Paul begins verse 21 with, to him be glory. After writing to the Ephesians for three chapters about the glorious truths of God's plan to elect, redeem, save, gather, bless his people, Paul just bursts forth in doxology, in worship, in praise, in adoration. Right? To him be glory. To, to give glory to God is, is to worship him, to praise him, to thank him, to acknowledge his supreme worth and, and value as the one true living God. And so John Stott summarizes verse 20 and 21 this way. The power comes from him. The glory must go to him. And so look again at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Notice that. God's glory resides in the church and in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what, what, is, what is Paul getting at here? You see, there, there are several different doxological prayers and, and songs that really just burst forth and erupt all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this is the only place where a doxological prayer or song uh, bursts forth and says that God's glory is in the church. Okay, so what's Paul's point? Well, he says God's glory is in the church and in Christ Jesus. And we, we know God's glory resides in Christ, right? We know that Christ himself, he's fully God, fully man. Last week we looked at Colossians 1.19. It says, for in him, for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We know that. And we know from, from John chapter 1, John chapter 2, many other places, that Jesus is the true and ultimate temple to which the Old Testament tabernacle and temple pointed and so the glory of God fills Jesus just as the glory of God filled the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Well, with the glorious truths of God's plan to elect, to save, to redeem, to gather, to bless his people in the forefront of his mind and heart, Paul bursts forth in doxology and in praise and worship. And we need to understand that Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, it's propelled by and necessarily rests upon all that he's been writing, all that's gone before in Ephesians 1 and 2, including the emphasis at the very end of Ephesians 2 on the church as this, this new creation temple, this, this dwelling place of God. We looked at this passage last week, so look again at Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we looked at this briefly last Sunday, but in the Old Testament, God expressed his covenant relationship with his people by dwelling among them in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But then after generations of rebellion and, and, and uh, turning away to sinfully worship the false gods and the false idols of the nations, God sent his people into exile 
but he graciously promised to dwell in their midst yet again. We saw last week in this promise in Ezekiel 43 that God would one day build a new creation temple. This temple that that Paul's writing about in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. But there are other promises that God will come and dwell amongst his people again, within his people again, his new creation temple. For example, consider Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This promise that I will come yet again and I will dwell in your midst. That that I will build this new creation temple, my church. And it will be for you and for all the nations. That's what Paul's been writing about in Ephesians, about how this, this, new, this new church, this new fam, one family of God is for Jews and the non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, people of all backgrounds and tribe, tongues, people groups, all nations coming together in this one, trusting in this one promise, this one Savior, Jesus Christ, this one family of God. And listen to what commentator S.M. Baugh says about this fulfillment. This is a long quote, but it's helpful to tie this together. It says, Paul recognizes the fulfillment of this promise articulated by Zechariah in Christ Jesus. Thus he sees the fullness of God's glory residing with his new covenant united people, consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles as a new temple building. Paul states that this new reality in the church will never end in his unprecedented, extravagant expression of eternity, which we read in verse 21, for all generations, forever and ever, amen. That God's glory will never depart from his church until the day when his resurrected people will enter the reality of the heavenly Jerusalem, which you can read about in Revelation 21 and 22, which has already come into inaugurated fulfillment in the resurrected Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. The implications of this are most significant. In the Old Testament era, people had to travel long and hard to the distant land of Israel to inquire of the Lord or to discover his dwelling place. Now the Lord dwells wherever his church is established together, even to the ends of the earth, as his church expands through the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. And all of this was in Paul's mind and heart, and it's what propels him forward to to burst forth in doxology, praise, and worship here at the end of Ephesians 3. And you may be asking, okay, well, Richard, what does this mean for me today? What will this mean tomorrow and this next week? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. Consider all that we've learned so far in Ephesians. Consider all we've learned in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 about God And about his plan of redemption to elect and save and redeem and gather and bless his people. Jews and Gentiles. People of all types, all backgrounds, every tongue, tribe, nation, people group. Bringing them into one family of God. One church. One living temple. And think about what this says about your God. Your God who is able Your God who makes these huge promises all throughout his word, and then he fulfills them. 
He does what he says that he will do, that all of his Old Testament promises have come to fulfillment in Christ's person and work. See, your, your God is able. He is a great God. He loves you with a great love. He has raised you to new life with his resurrection power, which is at work within you, and he's not limited in any way. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Therefore, don't limit what you're praying for. Also, don't miss this. You matter to God. Okay, we matter to God, but you as an individual, dear Christian, you matter to God. God loves you with love that's so immense that it's immeasurable, that it surpasses knowledge. You are inconceivably valuable and precious to God. He calls you by name. He so loved you that he sent his one only son to save you from your sins. And he's put his Holy Spirit within you. And see, part of what we see in verse 21 is this, this promise, this promise of eternity that Jesus will bring all of his people all of the way home to heaven. And don't miss this, in God's glory, God's glory, his radiant presence resides in you, in the church alongside and through our risen Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, hear us now. As we pray, I pray this this prayer one final time for us as a church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Father, please hear our our silent prayers now as we prepare our hearts to come to this table.